Hey everyone, thanks for joining us over here on Bible Unbound. I hope you guys are having a good holiday season. I don't know if you've realized this, but December has five weeks in it. Huh, who knew? So instead of uh, gaming out an entire new episode, I thought that we could take a week off and I would put together the Old and New Testament stories so that that way there's a little bit more continuity between the two episodes. But if you listened to the episode titled The Old Testament in about 20 minutes and the episode titled The New Testament in about 20 minutes, then this episode will be nothing new because it's just those two episodes squished together. Uh, but if you didn't listen to those episodes and you want a fuller overview of the entire biblical narrative, uh, Genesis to Revelation, then this might be a good video because it's the entire Bible in about 30 minutes. So thanks for sticking with me. Thanks for gaming this out and we'll see you next week. It all starts at the beginning of time, where God creates the world from chaos and darkness and organizes it into order and goodness. God creates all things we experience on this plot of land. He creates stars and the moon, seas and skies, land and animals, fish and birds. But the crown jewel of his creation are the human beings which he blesses, and he commands them be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. We see God as creator giving this divine ability to cultivate to the human beings so that they can partner with him in the creation process through planting and caring for each other and the whole world around them. God wants human beings to represent his good and ordered creation out to the rest of the world beyond the Garden of Eden. But to make sure that they are good stewards of this creation process, he tests them by giving them a choice. The human beings can either follow in God's wisdom of learning right and wrong, or they can choose to seize autonomy for themselves and begin to define right and wrong apart from God's guidance. He gives them a choice to eat from the tree of life along with all the other trees in the garden, but commands them not to eat from the tree of knowing good and knowing bad. But the human beings, tricked by a rebellious being, decide to seize autonomy for themselves. They seize their own power, and we see that human beings are the very problem we need to solve. And therein lies our plot tension. Human beings are supposed to be God's representatives to the whole earth, but human beings are the problem infected by the serpent's infectious bite. We need a new human being who will crush the head of the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, God says that through the seed of the woman, through her offspring, will come that very human being who will crush the head of the snake. But the snake will bite his heel. And so our train leaves the station. The ground cursed, human beings exiled. Because the human beings chose autonomy for themselves, they now live in a fallen state of being, perpetually unable to choose God's divine wisdom, and instead choosing their own. So God, in his mercy, exiles them from the garden so they can't take and eat from the tree of life that he planted in the middle of the garden, lest they live forever in this fallen state of being. 
Once the humans leave the divine presence and are entered into the chaos of creation, creation begins to undo itself, and the first dark spiral of sin begins. The humans descend into chaos as murderers and slanderers, liars. They rise and try to seize autonomy for themselves over and over and over again. But God, faithful to himself to partner with humanity, chooses one family out of the chaos, the family of Abraham. And with this man, God makes an unconditional covenant promising that through the Abrahamic line will continue rulers and creators and a divine representative to all of the earth. Could this be the snake crusher? The narrative then follows three generations of this Abrahamic family. And, well, it's a good thing Abraham's covenant was unconditional, because he messes up all the time. And his family ends up as exiles in Egypt. There, in Egypt, they're enslaved to a captor who he himself claims to be God and claims to be the arbiter of all right and wrong, good and bad, slave and free. And so God, faithful to the promise he made to Abraham and faithful to himself, calls up Moses, a liberator, to liberate the captive Israelite people and lead them out of Egypt. God then makes a covenant with this whole nation to be his divine representatives to all the earth. This people will go out and be a blessing to all the nations, and they will be the ones to cultivate, to multiply, to rule, and subdue in partnership with their creator God. But in order for all of this to work, the Israelites must obey the commands given to them once they leave Egypt. They must be good stewards of this divine image in order to be good representatives, unlike everyone who came before them. So, God makes this covenant, the covenant with Moses and all the Israelites, conditional, saying that blessings will only come through obedience to the divine commands. And the Israelites break all of the commands almost immediately. They lie, steal, cheat, covet, and idolatrize their way into power and choose to understand right and wrong better than their creator over and over and over again. They choose to taint the divine image for their own personal gain. Even the ones who are supposed to be more righteous, like Moses, fail at this task of upholding the commandments well. The spiral into uncreation continues on, and the serpent seems to be winning. Finally, Israel hits its absolute lowest point when the appointed rulers called judges take over. These judges are the most violent, disloyal, untrustworthy people so far. They're supposed to be God's representatives, but instead, in one instance, one that in the book of Hosea God claims is the worst atrocity in all of Israel, a judge cuts a woman into 12 pieces after being sexually abused and sends her around to the 12 tribes of Israel. God is furious. But instead of undoing creation like he did with the flood, upholding his promise being faithful to himself and to humanity, he decides to partner with humanity again and heed the Israelites' desire for a king. A ruler like the rest of the nations. There are laws outlined for rulers in Deuteronomy, so they should know exactly what to do. And God appoints Saul, a tall, handsome, charismatic leader to oversee the people. But Saul, like a maddened Macbeth, can't handle the power. 
A young shepherd boy upstages him in a battle, and he grows debilitatingly paranoid. The spiral seems to be starting all over again. So God appoints David, the young shepherd boy, to be the royal hero of the throne of Israel. Now, if there were ever a snake crusher, this guy might be it. He's a fine representative of God. David was the man after God's own heart. He was a righteous man, blameless, and ends up in a sex scandal slash affair and murders a man. The husband of the woman he had an affair with. The snake has a hold on David just as much as anyone else. God gets rid of David and raises up Solomon. Solomon is David's son, and he does great things for the kingdom of Israel. He widens the borders makes it a prosperous nation, but like Jekyll and Hyde, he can't seem to control his lustful desire for foreign women. And king after king, commandment after commandment, is broken. Not a single king can fulfill the law, let alone keep it. And the Israelite people find themselves to be terrible representatives of God's perfect standard. These kings, and the people of Israel are called out to judgment and hope by men called prophets. The prophets see the infectious bite of the serpent akin to being enslaved. They speak of coming wars and captors, but also remind the people of the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3. They claim that one day, through the Davidic line, there will be a man who will crush the head of the serpent, and the people will be liberated just like when they were enslaved in Egypt. And they will be made into a new people. But eventually, entropy wins. The kingdom is split in half by the awful leadership of the kings, and the northern kingdom is taken captive by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom is taken captive by Babylon. And the prophets, they all die out, along with generations of the people of God, and the voice of God is lost to the wilderness. It ends with a question and a glimpse. The question is, which will you choose? Your own will or God's will? The glimpse is one of hope. God says that he is faithful to his promises and he will bring one in the likeness of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord for the snake crusher promised in Genesis 3. Fade out. On the horizon of the Galilean desert, a small figure walks slowly. The sun rises behind him. The heat circulates off the ground. If this was an alien movie, it would open with the buildings destroyed and the world ended. If this was a superhero movie, the city would be quiet. Too quiet. The man on the horizon is clothed in camel's hair, and he mutters to himself the Psalms as he walks. This is a man named John the Baptizer, and he comes in the likeness of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord to the people of Israel. He started a new movement out of the desert wasteland off the east bank of the Jerusalem slopes down near the Jordan River, where he's been baptizing people and claiming that God, in the Messiah, is coming soon. People have started to listen to him, and they gather near him to hear him preach of this coming kingdom. The people have waited their entire lives for this. Not only them, but their parents, and their parents' parents, and their grandparents' grandparents, and there have been other people in the past few hundred years claiming to be the Messiah in accordance with the Daniel prophecies. But all of them, tricksters wanting money for their magic, have been put to death 
and their disciples have scattered. Could John be the next victim of this messiah mania that so many have fallen victim to? He doesn't seem like it. He keeps claiming it will be someone coming after him. Someone greater than himself. Weird. On the opposite slope, a man walks by that catches the attention of John. He stops and calls out to him. His name is Jesus. And he comes from the slum town of Nazareth, off to the north. Jesus walks down to John and asks to be baptized. When he is, the heavens open up. Just like they did in creation or at the flood. But this time, the Spirit of God descends upon the man. And John knows... This is he whom they have waited for. But Jesus must follow in the footsteps of his ancestors and be tempted and tried before his ministry can truly begin. The Spirit of God leads him out into the wilderness where an enemy of the world, the ancient serpent, the accuser, the opposition, attacks him. But unlike his ancestors in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds at these temptations and can start his ministry in the north near the Dead Sea. Our accounts seem to split ways here as they point out and highlight different aspects of Jesus' ministry, all trying to accomplish slightly different tasks. Matthew claims that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and every good kingdom has a set of laws, a code of conduct, and so here we hear those laws. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. But these laws are so utterly and profoundly different than the world's laws, how can anyone follow them perfectly? They sound great, but way way too hard. From there, Jesus moves on in the power of the Holy Spirit and begins to live out those kingdom values by healing people and teaching more of them. Jesus also gathers a large crowd around him, like John had, but tenfold. He picks 12 to be his close representatives, a picture-perfect representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 are all different kinds of scoundrels. One is a religious zealous nut, while the other is a traitor to his own religion. But if they're going to live in this kingdom, they ought to start to live peaceably now. Jesus takes three of those twelve and he makes them really close friends. With those close friends, he goes up on a tall mountain in the spirit of Moses and before them, he's transfigured. He glows a bright white and the spirit of Moses and Elijah are with him, ministering to him. This would be a super strange encounter for anyone not familiar with the stories of Moses and Elijah. But luckily, biblical readers are really familiar with these stories. We see that these two men, Elijah and Moses, had profound encounters with God, with Yahweh, on these mountains. Once they come down from the mountain, we see the miracles get kicked way up a notch. People are healed without even laying eyes on Jesus. A man is raised from the dead, and all the while, Jesus keeps talking about this weird and strange event he calls his quote-unquote death. The disciples don't believe it. After all, if he's the Messiah, he can't die. Plus, they're all headed south towards Jerusalem now. That's exactly where the Messiah will conquer the Roman Empire. The Messiah is, after all, a great military conqueror who will come to destroy the oppressive empires like the prophet said in the Old Testament. Well, it's Passover week now, and Jewish people from all over the ancient world gather in Jerusalem, this massive city in the heart of Israel where David, a thousand years before, set up the city of God. This is it. This is the triumphant entry point of the Messiah, Jesus, as king over all the Jews, over all of the earth. People flock to this moment, having heard of the incredible miracles he's performed and the great feats and accomplishments he's done up in the north. This could really be the Messiah. Jesus makes a beeline straight for the temple. He marches into the temple, flips over the tables, calls them out, a den of robbers steams out, 
Cheers and whoops can be heard echoing throughout the temple. And Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps over his city. Rome is the oppressor. The religious leaders in Jerusalem are the oppressors. Humanity is the oppression to God's good creation. I mean, it all started here, in Jerusalem, where God made his people, his covenant people. The religious leaders are not happy. <laughs> They've heard of this blasphemous character in the north, and now that he's in their territory, he's ruined their temple and caused a massive uproar. Over the course of the next week, they will seek every opportunity to trap him in his words and ultimately kill him, to silence him and his disciples. The fact that he flipped over all the tables, that'll get him killed by Friday. He spends the week teaching and serving in the temple and in the garden surrounding the temple. He eats with the tax collectors and the sinners, the ungodly of the ungodly, but he also eats with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. One of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, begins to work with these religious leaders to betray Jesus to them. To that end, the task is successful. The whole narrative, anyway, seems to have led up to this moment. Humans moved by God to choose between him and ourselves. Judas, a man who has sided with the religious leaders and come out of the whole affair a slight bit richer, chose a pretty good thing, right? I mean, if we were a first-century Jew, we'd think it'd be a pretty good thing. He has sided with his own people, with the people who are the voice of God, and he's gotten some money out of it, which, if we were a first-century Jew, we would also know that that means you are blessed by God. The more money you have, the more blessing you have from heaven. But as we've seen since the garden, the life of a human is difficult, and our choice is not between good and bad, but rather good, and pretty good. And thus, we see another human in another garden, just as before. Jesus is praying that the will of God be done in his own life, unlike his ancestor Adam, who decided that the will of humanity should rule, even though the will of God will mean his own death. Judas leads a mob in classic fashion with torches and swords to where Jesus is praying. They capture the praying man and lead him to the high court under the night sky. It's an illegal move on the part of the Pharisees. No one is allowed to be tried at night. But here they are, when the crowds are asleep. They find him guilty of blasphemy, and the gospel writers make the irony utterly apparent. They let go a man named Barabbas, son of the father in Aramaic, an utter tragedy. They lead Jesus up a hill, cross on his back, nail him, and raise him, leaving him hanging in the cold air to die. Most victims of crucifixion take days to die. They die of asphyxiation, they suffocate. But Jesus, having been beaten so brutally, dies within hours. It's finished. Ringing our story to a climactic close, ending how it finished, with the death of a man. You know, 
I learned about the irrevocability and the inevitability of death at 12 when my dad passed away. You know, sometimes I let my mind wander and, and I think about what it would be like if I got to see him again today. What would we do? What would we talk about? I mean, it's ridiculous and, and fantasy, but I think anyone who has ever lost someone would understand this. And sometimes, sometimes I think about just what the disciples would have felt like on that Friday. Because they didn't just lose someone that they loved, they lost love himself. And I think that's why Mary and Martha went first thing on Sunday morning to anoint him with burial oil. They run quickly from where they were staying to the tomb where he was laid. But when they get there, they only see a gardener. <laughs> they only see the one who planted the garden. The one who's responsible for the creation and cultivation of all of it. <laughs> Standing there with two angels. They cannot believe their eyes. The author is presenting Jesus is the Messiah. The anointed Christ, the snake crusher who has come to reverse what Adam did in the garden. And Jesus is beckoning all who believe in him, in his lordship, in his kingship, all who believe in his place as God, to join him in defeating the grave as well. The women, they run back and tell the others all that they've seen and all that they've heard. But their excitement, it cannot be understated. They have peace, they have joy, they have love physically back with them in their midst. I can only imagine what they did, what they talked about. And Jesus tells them that they should go and they should share this truth, this new reality, that death has been conquered and sins can be forgiven, which finally creates for Yahweh human representatives to, to go and cultivate his good creation in the lives of others. This was the plan in the garden, this was the plan at Sinai, and now this is the plan to the ends of the earth. The authors recount Jesus ascending into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of the Father, completing the job of the priest started in Leviticus. The disciples? Well, they actually stay put for some time. Thousands of years before this, Moses went up on a mountain and received the Ten Commandments. The Jewish people? They called this Pentecost. During the celebration of Pentecost after Jesus' death, the disciples receive not ten more commandments, but the Spirit of God himself in their own bodies. Where once the mountain of Sinai was on fire, their tongues are now lit aflame. And once where a tower of Babel dispersed all of human language, all of human language comes together again. After they're baptized into the Holy Spirit, the disciples spread this good news all across the Mediterranean. They seem to be 
raconteurs, recounting the story that all of humanity has fallen out of right relationship with God. And unlike every other religion at the time, they claim that all you have to do to be in right relationship with God is not about what you sacrifice, it's not about how you treat other people, it's not about following any set of arbitrary standards, but rather it's about believing and trusting in Jesus' place as God, and our place as servants to that God. Some people, they believe this message wholeheartedly. Others are skeptical. And still others, they simply find it preposterous. We meet one of the biggest proponents of this new religion, a man named Saul, who was a Pharisee himself and even persecuted Christians. But on the road to a place called Damascus, he's met by the risen savior Jesus, and he spends the rest of his life planting churches all around the ancient world. He even writes them letters to address how this new reality can and should shape their lives to be more honoring to the God that saved them. After all, he claims, if any of this is true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then God is worthy of whatever little obedience you can muster up. At the end of this wild, transcendent epic, we do get another story, an epilogue, about where all of this is going. It's a crazy new future where God is king over all of creation once again, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord, because he, taking on the likeness of man, died while we were still sinners, so that we might be reconciled to him. And the Father sent his one and his only Son into the world, so that whoever would even simply just believe in him may be reconciled back to this God, like a master being reconciled to a slave, or a man to his wife, or a child to his parent, or a bride to the bridegroom, or Adam to Eve, humanity to their God. This future contains no evil, no death, no sin. It's filled with justice and righteousness, and that what was lost in the garden, the ability to eat from the tree of life, is regained in this new creation where corrupt, evil nations and people will have no power, and Jesus will reign as the risen, eternal Savior of creation. It says, Then the angel of the Lord showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. 
Hey, did you know you could check us out over on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook? We got a lot of stuff going on over on those platforms as well. But of course, you don't have to if you're just here to listen to the story, then hey, thanks for checking it out. If you're not, then hey, thanks for participating in our community. This was Bible Unbound, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.